actually. It's Shark Teal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee, talking about writing, publishing, the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Dave Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner, with special guest L. Douglas Garrett. This is episode 34, A Knife Fight to the Death. Welcome back, Doug. Hi. <laughs> Great to make it in. Uh, some of you remember that uh, we have enjoyed having Doug here in the coffee house before when he was getting his first book out onto Amazon called Remember Them. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of success. It's been a lot of fun. It, it has been a lot of fun. I've actually seen that uh, you seem to have made a few lists of people reading it. You've passed certain numbers. Yeah. Did you hit your uh, 20 approvals? I went out and rated it. I think you all should go out and read it. But uh, We're still hunting up the big pile of reviews that everybody wants. I was going to take a moment because we have it and it's something to talk about. If all of you out there have your favorite people writing books or even just your favorite authors that you've never met, Amazon has this thing called an algorithm. And it really needs somebody to get past 20 reviews before it starts saying, well, if you liked, you know, David Drake, you will also like L. Douglas Garrett. Now, I personally adore David Drake. A um, good place to start. Right? <laughs> Hammer Slammers. You, yeah. Weren't you the one who introduced me to Hammer Slammers years ago, Dave? Probably. I think I borrowed the hover tanks from you. I got to go up and fangirl a little bit at David Drake at the last World Fantasy Convention on the topic of the hover tanks. And I've never seen a man light up at a Christmas tree so enthusiastically before. Turned away from his group. He's like, you like my tanks? I love my tanks. And we had this (laughs) great discussion suddenly on how tanks, hover tanks eliminated all of the problems of tank warfare stories, which is dirt. Yes. And your story, <laughs> I like your stories because your stories take us into the land of the operatives. Oh, gosh. We're, we're into the dirt. <laughs> we live in the world that basically everything is dirty all the time. <laughs> yes. And, and that's a beautiful place to be, but it's something that sometimes gets left out of a lot of stories, be they military fiction or... I think it was the deed of Paxinarian by Elizabeth Moon that first gave us slogging through the mud and cleaning things and how much time you spend cleaning things. And I loved it for the realism. And that's that's what I love about yours, too. Tell, tell us about, um, we, we talked about Remember Them. Hmm? Tell us a little bit about Remember When. Okay. The choices between the two is in Remember When, I was able to write in an urban environment and to set things up so that all of the dirt, all of the grit, were scenes that you all knew. It's, you're crossing the street in traffic. You're going to see down a block to see someone. In Remember Them, I had the pleasure of telling a story that was out in the operational world. Uh, what we politely call the third world, um, unfair to them. Dirty, gritty places where pavement is rare, sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. Um, In terms of third world, a lot of people would immediately get a certain image of a term. If you were going to write third world, what's what's the elevator pitch that you would give to people saying, understanding the operative third world? The operative third world is not just walking down the street and noticing every building has paint peeling. You can get that in Brooklyn. (laughs) <laughs> well, certain parts of Brooklyn anyway. <laughs> yes. It's upscaling now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
South Side Old Chicago. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. But in the operative's third world, it is that the morality and lifestyle around you is still tribal, factional, family, local, personal, and oftentimes intensely religious with a very strong note on what's a religion. Oh. Well, we're going back to that here, so... Uh, <laughs> sure. And you, you, you just described Des Moines. Like that. Mm. Sure. Just pick that as a place. But as an example, the way you try and interact with the town around you, with how you're going to recruit an extra person to be your driver, the way you're going to have places to hide your stuff, the limitless amounts of stuff you always have to carry with you. Because it's not there for purchase or whatever. The third world... The operating world is very different. If you are, they captured it in a movie recently really well for the urban environment. Um, Atomic Blonde had several scenes of how they moved operational materials in an urban environment. It was absolutely glorious. It was also purely Europe. Yeah. I was going to say I really liked it. Um, Mostly because I went to see it with a bunch of Ukrainians who taught me about the difference between suchka and suka. For those laughing, I'm going to tell you out there, when you heard them say suka over and over again, then that was bitch. Suchka is, ah, oh, you little bitch. <laughs> you might say suchka to your dog or, mm-hmm. you know. I was playing hockey once and there was one of our uh, players, we played with a few Russians and one was, had sworn at a little bit and afterwards <laughs> and he came up and apologized. He's like, I'm sorry, I should not use language. And I'm like, that's okay. I know you love me. I heard Suchka, not Suka. And he stared at me and all this expression changed. He's like, where did you learn that? <laughs> <laughs> where did you learn national secret? <laughs> From Atomic Blonde, I told him. Yeah. And a bunch of really wonderful Ukrainians down at Arm Street. <laughs> but please do go on on the topic of, all right, so you have to carry things around. What's You have to carry things around. The way you interact with people is on a different basis. It's oftentimes not just selling to the person as a one-on-one person. You are appealing to them as they see their place, them as they see their role in their tribe, their town, their community, their society. And you actually will in some cases even speak to them on a different basis. And uh, probably the example I would pick out of the writing I've done recently was in Remember Them, the Portuguese language speaker of the, of the team um, is a North American European, but he locks into a communication with one of the locals who's been hired to be their driver assistant. And the entire basis of the discussion is family. They're sitting there quietly talking about each other's families, when in fact the operatives is a fake, but mm-hmm. as if it was the basis of his family. And totally built their relationship on that, completely unmoored to where they were, what they were doing, the fact they hired this guy to have a 4 by 4 they could drive in mining country in the back part of a miserable jungle area in the wrong time of year. Mm-hmm. One would presume that to a certain extent, you, you've just actually described almost emotional labor, the requirement of empathy and to make somebody give a crap whether you live or die, and whether they're going to dodge out at the first sign of trouble or whether they think of you, you're a human being to them, not just a blank, a blank slate, a figure or in a and paycheck. out, a paycheck. Yep. 
to make yourself more. Yeah, the guy who will stay with you past the point of my paycheck is I've fulfilled my obligations to the paycheck. <laughs> or the paycheck isn't worth this. Yeah. Like not so long, yet. Mr. Jones. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there's a that's a rare thing, but yes. I was also interested in bringing up, and, and you two in particular, because you both expressed opinions, on the topics of, frankly, blocking action in, in blocking scenes. For instance, uh, Dave, I introduced you to one time um, a Laurel Hamilton book back before she got um, sex crazed. Mm -hmm. And you threw it aside the minute you said, oh, my God, the woman doesn't know guns. Why is she writing about guns? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it's true that that can block it up. But there's also the how do you describe action such that you can see it clearly? I, I want to make clear that if, um, if a guns thing irritates me, um, I'm not a particularly a gun person. I mean, um, but it is symptomatic of something that, I mean, we, we live in a gun culture and guns are on TV and so forth all the time. And when somebody doesn't even know what the caliber of a bullet actually means, that just throws you right out of the story. I mean, there are, there are other topics where that's true, but, um, it's very glaring in, uh, mm talking about firearms or <laughs> I, I introduced my whole writing group to the point that one can actually Google to see what the exit wounds look like for different calibers. Oh yes. From different ranges. I mean, there's pictures and that's the beauty of, you know, Google and things that you can find out so easily. So instead of instead of guessing, you can look things up and yeah. let's not be lazy writers. Right. right. Do your research. Right. And please don't you don't need the experiential base. There's enough research out there that you well, can see what we've all learned from right. you. Well, you <laughs> say that. <laughs> so, so I guess the 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 um, topper to all that is if you don't even know enough to know that you don't know and need to do the research, um, you shouldn't be writing about something. And um, I don't know. I I just don't see how you can not know that about. <laughs> Oh, I can even agree with this as a more general case than specifically dealing with fights. Anytime you're going to reference a technology mm -hmm. as key to the moment in your story, and you don't know how that technology works, you're probably writing about the wrong thing. Well, well as we learned from, was it George Lucas and Love, a short nine-minute movie, just write what you know. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Maybe you don't have to know. And I think science fiction has been doing this for years. Maybe we don't understand FTL travel. Make something that is not necessarily go outside. Warp drive, sure. There's a warp drive. <laughs> yeah, but then it, even then it has to be consistent. But that's a, that's a different topic. That's internally consistent. We'll go there another day. But um, and works very well in much assumed fiction, too. You just have to get there. Right. And to be fair to Laurel K. Hamilton, well, but not her readers, probably, um, she's writing for a lot of people who probably don't know anything about guns and are just as happy to read um, garbage. Yeah. But um, if you have somebody who's an expert or even like me just you know knows enough to know that this is garbage, that uh, it throws them out of the story. Well, another set of eyes. When I first wrote Bluebird, I had a friend that was went Army, FBI, IBM, mm -hmm. and I sent it to him. I'm like, I need you to verify for me that my forensic investigation here is correct. And he sent it back and he's like, yep, you're good. I'm like, 
that's what I needed was just because I think I know something, but even though I think I know it, sometimes you still need to have a second person say yes, or what were you smoking that night? <laughs> 2 a.m., we have a lot of great ideas. Great ideas. Every single, <laughs> every single graduate student seminar eventually ends in these great ideas. These great ideas. <laughs> right drunk, edit sober. In, in particular, I wanted to uh, talk about blocking, though, because sometimes, have you ever been reading a story where somebody threw his gun across the room, and then there was fighting, and they ducked, and this and that, and then suddenly he fired the gun twice, and you're like, wait, you, wow. threw, you threw it across the room. I saw you there. And I'm going to even go one step further on this. You just used the term blocking. We both know it from theater. That's true. But in this case, what we do not mean is impeding the story. We mean the p physical position of things we're describing in the story. Exactly. The timing, the pacing, mm -hmm. who can be there to do that thing. Blocking matters and, in... And the physics. Yeah. Is it possible to throw a gun <laughs> across a gymnasium? <laughs> or the sound. For instance, I, I once had my roommate was cleaning his 22. We lived across the street from the police station. He was cleaning out on the table in front of me. And I sat down beside him and finished watching him clean and putting it together, you know, put the clip back in. And I said, I bet I can hit the tree in the front yard from here. And for some strange reason, he handed me his gun. And I picked it up and I fired it through the front screen door and hit the tree in the front door. And he turned to me and he said, that silence was me mouthing, what the hell did you do? Are you doing? I could not actually hear it because even the echo of a 22 Tiny mom's little 22 purse gun in a living room will destroy your hearing. Mm -hmm. I want you to remember that every time you watch TV from now on and they are firing their 44, blam, 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 and they turn and whisper to somebody who whispers back. Like, unless yeah. they're advanced lip readers, that is just yeah. so crap. That's one of the reasons I love Archer is <laughs> every, <laughs> time somebody, every time somebody, if you've never seen the show, it's... Uh, watch the first season, it's hilarious, but um, <laughs> somebody fires a gun, and then there's this ringing sound, and, and all the voices for the next five seconds are mop, 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 and they eventually fade back into real speaking. But, they, they even have Archer holding a finger over his ear to say, mop, <laughs> mop. <laughs> that is actually very well done. Um, I actually had a moment, I looked away from, from the microphone just a second there to try and create a thing. There are funny acoustic events that happen in enclosed spaces. There are. Firearms fired under a low ceiling create this very bad echo. Fired parallel to, but not through, a window. Any sheet of glass is a wonderful sound reflector. And I've ended up one side deafened, even when I was prepared for it, by firing something fairly large parallel to a glass window. So you're right with me on the firing. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the police never even looked out the window to see what had happened. So that's, you know, comforting, uh, comforting. Mm. Well, they thought it was one of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Some new kid. He's got his gun. We're so proud. Yeah. It's Colorado. What are you going to do? I'm 22. That's not, that's not shooting. That's huh. Ah, right. <laughs> got to get squirrel stew for lunch. <laughs> that's not a gun. This is a gun. <laughs> Um, but yeah, talking about scenes and moments, you can describe scenes for writing from the point of view of how the character experienced it. Mm -hmm. Or you can 
describe it as a description. And that may be closer to the key you're looking for of how we describe the blocking of the moment. Exactly. I mean, whether it's a fight scene or a sex scene, sooner or later, you got to know where the arms and legs are going, where the objects are going. Right. Where I'm going to put on my devil's advocate hat. Right. Right? Um, what if both are important to the story? Then you've got a lot more writing to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how do you go about it? Um, do you write your chapters from single point of view or not? Um, I don't write chapters. I have yet to write a novel. But okay. um, If you write from single point of view, you're going to have to revisit it in a separate moment. Mm-hmm. If you do it in multiple points of view or sequential timeline, you can do the description to the point that it affects the characters whose emotion you want to report. And then I would write a very specific inset paragraph about that character's ex- experience. Yeah. Um, I w- the only caution I will throw out there is keep in mind, everybody, if you have too many points of view in one chapter, you can really fuck with your readers about, I don't know who's talking now. I, I tried to read one that another friend wrote, and it was the third point of view within one chapter, and it was bouncing around in time, and I kind of closed it after chapter three because I could not follow it anymore. Yeah. It's like, if you can't follow it, they won't care. So take that with that very gentle care. Make sure some three stars in the middle of the page, something that somebody understands, it's a different point of view. A very good friend of mine simply says, always write single point of view chapters, with the exception being the rare case, mm-hmm. because you can't screw that up. And it's you can write from... Well, you can screw it up in other ways. Yeah. I think it's very, if you're trying first person versus third person, I think third person makes it easier. If you have everything that's first person and then try to switch to somebody else's first person, that can be really super hard. Whereas third person, it's, it's whether you're using I or he, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, I'm very proud of myself for creating this tangent, but let's get back to blocking. <laughs> let's get back to blocking. Um, you were saying, Doug, you had a, a because you've been in a knife fight. Wow. I mean, I have been fired at. I think, you know, anybody who lives in Colorado has had a gun pointed at them at one time or another. I did, but I was in um, Cleveland at the time. (laughs) (laughs) In in his defense, not the best part of Cleveland either. No. But I, I, you wrote a little thing of saying, and I think this is great for anybody to try. If you have an interesting experience, write down your experience when it happens, because it creates an opportunity for you to go back and use that. And uh, you shared one with me, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading it for people here. Happy to do so. This is a piece that's actually, uh, it's a created vignette, but it references a real-life experience. And it uh, it's an encounter where I got into a fight, or in this case, the character version. All right. So this is a little vignette called Night Fight. There are a couple of basic conditions of a knife fight, not counting someone just sticking someone by surprise. Distance matters if there are alternatives to the knife available. Any knife seen to be more than about 20 feet away isn't really a threat if the defender has either the speed and space to run or a firearm in hand, presuming they know how to use it. The bigger issue is that knife fights are rarely surprisingly rarely given their prominent role in tale and legend, two people with two knives. I've been in four knife fights and none of them started with me being the one with a knife out. Yes, that does explain why I've gotten stuck twice. The art of defending against a knife while barehanded includes some presumption that that is going to happen. 
and the goal has to be don't get stuck anywhere important. It is also safe to say that encouraging someone already brandishing a knife to try and use it is a sign of dubious sanity when you are the one without the knife. I probably fit that indicator when I threw the drink I was holding all over the guy. I sure wasn't going to rush him cold, though. A skilled knife user on defense will hurt you badly as you close. I didn't know if he was skilled or not, but I sure wasn't planning on finding out in what would be a very bad way. So he got a bath in his clothes and came at me for it, and gave me the stable position at the time of engagement. His stick was a right hand rising, coming up from where he held the blade from about waist level and mostly going toward my face or throat. Not the worst opening, except for one thing. I stand with what would be a boxing left-handed stance. My right arm and leg are forward, not my left. That meant I would actually pass outside the path of his stab with my elbow bent in front of him, fist straight up, right arm covering my vitals from the attack. Someone really skilled as a defender would have been fast enough or predicted correctly and already across the path of the attack by the time the attack arrived. I'm not that good. The point of the blade, with his moving body weight behind it, and my emotion as much toward it as to pass it, hit my forearm about three inches above the bent elbow, square on the bone, underlying that point. I think the tip of the knife actually snapped from that, which should never happen if it was a quality blade. The shock went straight up my arm to the shoulder, shoved that side of me back. But with a moment being passing stride, the impulse did more to speed my turn around him to engage than to stop me. I broke his wrist, his arm, and his shoulder in four places, and then toe-kicked him in the side of the head twice when he was on the ground by then. I wore boots with pretty hard toes. He was somewhere between unconscious for an hour and going to die when I confirmed he had no ability to resist, no friends coming to help, and that I wasn't about to get immediately arrested. I picked up the knife, noting for the first time that the tip was broken off, and handed it butt first to bartender guy. He almost missed taking it from me because he was staring at my right arm. Then and only then did I realize I had about a half a pint of blood soaking the ripped sleeve and dripping. It wasn't that much, but it was showy. He was a lot more surprised when the guys following me arrived before the cops did and scooped us both up. Mark, uh, Mike Teamy, dropped a hundred U.S. on him and said, clean up. Proving he was Mr. Sympathetic, Mark then turned to me and said, you too, you're leaking. Uh, the medic bitched at me later for having done the pressure wrap with a bar rack, and it looked like what left about two-inch-long gash that never completely lost its scar until about a decade later. Uh, the bone chip was there, still there to be pulled out when suturing. That's all. <laughs> Things I love, <laughs> I was going to say. Very often in a lot of these stories, it seems like everyone is always ready for trouble at the drop of a hat. Like somehow we all walk through the world in a state of heightened adrenaline. Let's talk about adrenaline. <laughs> adrenaline is a magic drug. Adrenaline and endorphins can keep you from noticing that you've like it half a drug. And it is, if you mention it in stories, it actually adds that bit of realism too. 
like, I love this. And I think you can put it in a story. And I might say with adrenaline pumping, I barely felt the, Mm -hmm. because that gives your readers a chance to say, oh, well, you know, that would hurt. How could he? Ah, adrenaline. We can all remember it. Mm -hmm. It's a shared experience. And it's probably one of the most intense of the shared experiences most people have, unless they uh, have a long history of being in near car crashes and the panic avoidance. Well, that's adrenaline as well. Mm -hmm. Just what levels of reaction are happening. I had the pleasure, good point, bad point that you may think of this, of having an instructor who talked a lot about willful adrenaline triggers. Tell us about it. That's a new term for me. It's simply pretty much any good martial arts instructor, for example, will give you some measure of this. You sit in a relatively calm state, but you have prepared your own internal, almost meditative response that will cause your body to be in cascading toward an adrenaline response. You actually panic yourself in a way. You go faster, or from your perspective, everything around you goes a lot slower. Uh-huh. I, uh, I heard an interesting, uh, another tangent sort of, but I heard an interesting uh, radio program at one time. <clears throat> it was like uh, one of the, the uh, NPR Mm-hmm. radio programs and they did an experiment where um, they wanted to see if um, if adrenaline actually um, made the clock slow down or if um, it was just a perceived thing mm-hmm. right so so when when you're um, when you have your adrenaline going you um, it looks like the clock is running Mm-hmm. Much slower, right? So, so what they did was they jumped out of an airplane and looked at the looked at the counter, mm-hmm. and um, their experience was that no, it was still going like really fast, but their I don't know their their experiential time was still slowed, but not not um, not to not to the point where they could read the the tenths of a second going by. Certainly what you experience and the time you have to decide things in between is a big part of that. I could see that there was an interesting case to be made of the combination of whether you have an overload of adrenaline plus what other part of your endocrine system. Is it cortisol? People will shut down. (laughs) This is how some, um, I coach hockey. Yeah. We had a girl who had a fall and had a panic attack, and I literally picked her up the ice and held her for an hour and a half mm-hmm. because she couldn't she couldn't even unclench her fingers. So adrenaline takes whatever's going on in there and intensifies and intensifies it. Well, so that's, famously, it's it's fight or flight, right? Yeah. But um, the fight part is um, it's not martial arts. It's it's whatever you've. I would argue that there's an incorrect thing about the fight or flight, though. Sometimes it's fight or freeze. Yeah, freezing is another um, another response to uh, adrenaline. Yeah. There, Sometimes. Is a, there is a failure state for it. The uh, bit I referenced... Fainting goats. Yes. <laughs> Good point. The bit I actually referenced about trying to willfully trigger your adrenaline is far closer, though, to the power weightlifter saying, I'm going to make my one last rip at this, mm-hmm. than it is the time dilations, decision-making advantages, and other features of mm-hmm. adrenaline. Um, just a quick perspective note. In full battle rattle, you put almost another 130 pounds on my already 200-pound frame. 
If you had to pick me up and carry me out, that's not going to be a thing you're going to do very easily. Mm-hmm. Sure I would, because we've established that I have a knife and I'm going to cut the pack off of you as quickly <laughs> as possible. We need the, for this story, we need the pack. But Oh, right, right, yeah. right. But in general, yes, you strip down your loads or you drag them out by their boot heels. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have to do a full body lift, pretty much no one smaller than an NFL lineman is going to pick up a normal-sized person in gear and put them over their shoulder. It right. just doesn't happen. So are you saying that all of those war movies where they throw the fully laden guy over their back and march 20 miles is a lie? 20 miles is a bit of a lie. I had a guy on my back with no backpack and no other gear off and on for three days. I couldn't move with him for more than 20 minutes at a time without having somebody relieve me. Yeah. Um, then there's Forrest Gump, who just... throws his comrades over his shoulder and runs yeah but but he didn't have to run very far i mean safety is sometimes unless you're in the middle of a field in which case you're kind of crawling on your hands and knees as fast as you can you know i may have done that (laughs) when when they're shooting at you (laughs) but oh this is a cow tipping story okay no no this one was just a shortcut you know d-a-n-g-e-r shortcut Across that yeah. fence line, I think. <laughs> in in a weird sort of way, it it is applicable to sports. Is much I love that you guys said weightlifters because mm-hmm. in in hockey we call it finding your low gear. Mm-hmm. Some people do not find their low gear, but when they find their low gear, suddenly you're faster, and f- sometimes you're even faster than you could normally skate. It's just when you have the, oh, yeah, I'm gone. Speaking I want Speaking of switching perspective, <laughs> no, you change person in mid-sentence. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, come on, hockey. You're a hockey fan, right? I am, in fact, a hockey fan. The, you live in Japan, so uh, which which team do you follow? Well, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be right next door to the homeland for one of the Asia League teams. And so hockey club uh, Tochigi Nico Ice Bucks are our squad. And we were the All-Japan champion this year, Woo-hoo! shortly before ending up at the bottom of the league. I, I hear a couple of them are actually on the Japanese Olympic team. Yeah, we have a national, we got uh, four national selectees and two reserve selectees. Um, so we're looking forward to what's going to go for Winter Olympics. Um, I'm sorry, the Japanese term for a selectee is daiho. So uh, Nihon daiho, or national select players is really a neat status to have and traditionally it was two of the big industrial league teams who kept most of those players employed basically a patronage to keep them able to keep playing (laughs) but we're really lucky that the league is wide enough now that you tend to get players scattered amongst all the teams and we're really proud of our boys i i love it i i just foresee someday there might be a future where they add to hockey and saying if we have all this let's make it full armor and a knife fight Oh, God. I, uh, I've seen some action down in the corners where knives would not add more to it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, hey, the sticks already have blades and there's penalties for slashing. So, you know, you already have a slashing penalty in the system. We just add slashing. Well, spe- spearing is in there. There's a whole creative possibility of melee hockey. It's true. Went to a fight and a hockey game. And a hockey game broke out. <laughs> 
We will put links to stories, especially Doug's stories on Amazon and the interesting things we've mentioned on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also fight us on Facebook and Twitter. We answer email. Uh, Our guests are usually delighted to answer email. So if you have questions, uh, we will be uh, happy to have Doug write them up and maybe he'll even blog for us a little bit on the website. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is definitely the beans we get out of Dana Street Coffee. Love you guys. Love you guys.